You might remember from last week in Joshua chapter 9, the story begins with an alliance of six nations from throughout the land of Canaan. We're told in Joshua 9, 1 and 2, that all the kings who are beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, and they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Well, the rest of the story of Joshua chapter 9, you'll recall, was about Gibeon making a covenant with Israel by trickery. Well, now chapter 10 goes back to this Canaanite alliance. Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, hears about the Joshua capturing Ai, and he also hears about the covenant that Gibeon has made with Israel. At, uh, Jerusalem's about seven miles south of Gibeon, and the four cities of Gibeon in Joshua 9.17, Gibeon, Kephara, Birot, and kiriath Yarim, are all north of Jerusalem, but they stretch from the east to the west. So now that Gibeon is allied with Israel, the southern kings of the Canaanites are cut off from their northern allies. And this helps us understand why Adonai, Zedek, and the other southern kings are so upset about Gibeon making an alliance with Israel and why they are afraid. Gibeon is not only a great city full of mighty warriors, but it's also very strategically located. So Adonai Zedek sends word to the other southern kings and asks them to come and give him aid. Well, when Gibeon sees the armies of Adonai Zedek and the other southern kings uh, encamped outside their city, they send word to Joshua. And they ask Joshua to come and give them aid. Joshua receives the message and starts heading up from Gilgal to Gibeon. Now at this point, surely Joshua is facing a great deal of uncertainty. The last time Joshua has received a word from God is in the middle of chapter 8, when Joshua and Israel is fighting against Ai, and God tells Joshua to raise his javelin. Since Israel made a foolish treaty with Gibeon, we've not yet heard anything from God to Joshua one way or the other. And so surely Joshua is wondering, are we now about to be punished for this foolish covenant that we made without praying first, that we were tricked into? Are we heading into another situation like Ai where we, we will be defeated? Or is this like the battle of Jericho where God fights with us and for us? Well, when Joshua starts heading up, God reassures Joshua in 10 verse 8. He says, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Notice then how the story continues in verse 9. Having been reassured by God that uh, God is with Israel, Joshua doesn't sit back and let God do all the fighting. No, Joshua and Israel march all night long to arrive at Gilgal, early in the morning, perhaps even before dawn. God's reassurance to Joshua, his promises to Joshua, lead to action, not give an excuse for inaction. Paul makes this same point clear to us in Philippians 2. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's promise to work for us, with us, and in us 
should encourage and motivate us to work, should motivate our action. Well, when Joshua and Israel arrives at Gibeon, they, uh, the Lord throws the armies of Adonai Zedek and the other Canaanite kings into confusion. And then as they retreat before Israel, God throws hailstones from the sky onto them. And then in response to Joshua's prayer, God does something with the sun. We'll talk in a few minutes about what that is. And in verse 15, we're told that Joshua and all Israel with him returns to their camp at Gilgal. It's a, and then the, the rest of the chapter describes what happens to the five kings and what happens to the other cities in southern Canaan. It's a bit like a painting where a painter blocks in the big shapes and then comes back in and adds the details. The author has told us in broad strokes that Joshua and Israel defeated the southern kings and then returned safely to camp. And then in verse 16 through about 39, it goes back over and fleshes in the details of what that looked like. First, we're told that these five kings who had joined in an alliance fled and they hid themselves in caves. In 1 Samuel, we're told that David hid in caves for quite some time. But these kings were apparently no Davids, for immediately Israel's army discovers that they are hiding out in a cave. Joshua doesn't deal with them then, but says, block up the mouth of the cave with big stones and place some guards. We'll deal with them later after the battle is over. When they return, Joshua calls for the kings to be brought out of the cave. He asks his chiefs to place their feet on the necks of these kings, a symbolic act showing that they have defeated these kings. Then the kings are put to death and their bodies are hung on trees until evening. Again, a symbolic act showing that they are cursed for fighting against God's people. And then their bodies are thrown into the cave and it is once again covered with stones. Then we hear about Joshua and Israel and how his army defeats Makeda, Libna, Lachish, the army of Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. Note that although Joshua 10 says that Joshua captured each city, that is not the same word as possessing the city. And so we'll see when we get to Joshua chapter 15, for example, that although here in chapter 10, the city of Debir is defeated, Caleb then has to go to Debir and drive out various inhabitants. I'll comment on these sorts of battle reports next week when we come to chapter 11. But this week I want to focus on two truths that we see in this passage. Two truths. The first is this. Be faithful to your word. Be faithful to your word. Joshua provides us an example of what it looks like to be faithful to your word. We saw last week that Israel was deceived and tricked into making a covenant with Gibeon, a covenant that they never would have made had they known all the facts. And now they're stuck in this commitment that they didn't intend to make. When Gibeon sends uh, messengers to Joshua to get help, Joshua is confronted with a decision. Here is an opportunity. Here's a bit of a loophole. After all, Israel pledged not to attack Gibeon or to wipe them out, but surely sitting back and letting someone else destroy Gibeon isn't quite the same thing. There's a bit of wiggle room here. And Joshua doesn't even have to flat out refuse 
to help the Gibeonites. It's about 18 miles, apparently, from the camp at Gilgal up to Gibeon. So even if Joshua just takes a leisurely pace on the march, by the time they arrive, perhaps the battle will be over, the Gibeonite problem will have been solved, and the Canaanite king's armies will be wearied from the battle. So all Joshua and the Israelites will have to do is mop up the men who are left. So here's a bit of a loophole that Joshua can get out of the deal that they made. But this is not at all what Joshua does. Like Scrooge at the end of Dickens' Christmas Carol, Joshua was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. Joshua sets out and marches through the night with God's reassurance and then attacks at dawn. Think about this for just a minute. Joshua and the Israelites march about 18 miles up from the Jordan Valley into the hill country. They march through the night, so it's dark. They're marching uphill and into the hill country. And then when they arrive, they attack. They seize the moment. There's no rest. Joshua is faithful to his word. And he provides a model for us. How often are we faced with the same choice? We can get out of our word on a technicality, or we think it's not really being unfaithful to our word. It's not really lying to omit key pieces of the truth. How often do we look for wiggle room to get around doing what we know is the right thing? Perhaps we see someone in need and pretend not to so we don't have to help. Or we pretend not to understand what someone is asking of us. We do the bare minimum. We try to squirm our way out of doing what we said we would do. When a better offer comes along, we try to get out of our deal and renege on it. But we are called to be people of our word. We are called to be faithful to our word. This is Jesus's point in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in Matthew 5, he says, don't make elaborate oaths in order to find loopholes later. Don't swear about things that aren't in control. Rather, Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And Jesus' brother James says the same thing in James chapter 5. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I can't help but wonder if Joseph, Jesus and James's father, had taught them this lesson since they both make the same point. Perhaps Joseph, the carpenter, had taught them when you're making business deals, don't make elaborate contracts. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, friends, if you are a Christian, your word that you are called to be faithful to Above all else is the gospel, the good news. That is the word that we proclaim, both with our mouths and with our lives. It's that Jesus is Lord and King, that he has won salvation for his people. And we are unfaithful to that word when we live in ways that contradict it, or when we say things that undercut it, or when we misrepresent it. If you are a Christian, you are saying, this message is true. The good news of Jesus is true. 
So live in a way that is faithful to what you are saying. Be faithful to the word you proclaim. Now here, I need to make a brief pastoral comment. Bear with me. Please don't get offended. I say this in love. In any given relationship, people give each other a certain amount of trust, a certain amount of credit. And we spend that trust when we make various claims. Remember the boy who cried wolf? By the end of the story, no one believes him. And so they don't respond when the wolf really comes and he calls for help. Now, as Christians, we are asking our non-Christian friends and families to believe something, to consider a claim that flies in the face of everything that they think they know. At Easter, for example, we have asked our friends and family to consider this truth, that Jesus, though a man, rose from the dead. That's a big claim. And we're spending a lot of our credit with others when we ask them to believe it. Now, I want to caution Christians to be thoughtful about how and where they express their views. If we only have so much trust and credit with other people, we need to be very careful about how we spend it. If you are a regular attender at Wiser Lake Chapel, you know that I very rarely, if ever, address political issues. And that's because I have determined to use the trust or credit that you have given me in our relationships. I've determined to use that to preach one thing, Christ crucified, the good news. I have all sorts of other views, but winning them you, you to those views, convincing you of them, doesn't do a lot of good. But convincing you of the truth of Christ crucified and risen again that is worth spending my credit on. So please, I'm going to encourage you to think twice before you post on Facebook or Twitter, how am I spending my trust in these comments I'm about to make? Is this advancing the good news or confusing it? Do I want to spend my credit with others arguing about the origins of the coronavirus, about the government's response to it, or about how the vaccine is being withheld in order to foist a one-world government on us all? Is that how I want to spend my credit with others? Or do I want to use my credit and trust to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and rose again? You may have noticed in our passage there's a running theme. Adonai Zedek calls for aid from the other Canaanite kings. Gibeon calls for aid from Joshua and Israel. And it asks, a, it raises a question for us. Where does our help come from? And this brings us to the second truth of this passage. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his people fighting for them. There's a bit of a play on words in the Hebrew of our story here. Verse 10 literally says, The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel and struck them with a great blow and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them. Now, there's ambiguity here. Who was doing the striking, the chasing, and the striking? Logically, of course, it's Israel who pursued their enemies and struck them with the sword. 
But grammatically, it seems to be that the Lord is, in fact, the subject of all four verbs in verse 10. And in verse 14 and again in 42, we are told, the Lord fought for Israel. And so in a very real sense, it is true. God fights for Israel, and so God is with his people. God, too, pursues and strikes the enemies who are attacking Israel. And then in verse 11, we're told that the Lord throws hailstones on the fleeing enemies. Modern weather reports from the last 30 years record a number of storms in the area that this story takes place that had hailstones, some as large as a baseball, causing injury and millions of dollars of damage. And indeed, verse 11 concludes that the hailstones killed more men than Israel did. And then look at verse 24 and 25, when Joshua has his commanders stand on the necks of the enemy kings. There are records and images from throughout the ancient Near East of kings acting in similarly symbolic ways when they have defeated an enemy. But what is unique here is that Joshua does not say, look what we have done defeating these enemies. No, he says to his commanders, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And then notice in the reports in the rest of the chapter about Joshua attacking various cities and defeating their armies, we're told the Lord gave it also and its king into the hands of Israel. God is faithful to his people fighting for them. And this is not just an Old Testament truth. In the New Testament, at the end, in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we're given an image of Jesus, who's described as a warrior, a warrior king, riding on a white horse, leading the armies of heaven. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Even now, Jesus Christ is a warrior king who fights for his people. God is faithful to his people answering their prayers. And here we turn to this miraculous event that's right in the very center of our story, where Joshua in prayer commands even God in the battle. And God listens, fighting for Israel, following Joshua's command. We're told never before has God done that, obeyed the voice of a human military commander. But what exactly is it that Joshua asks God for? You're probably not surprised to hear that there's a wide variety of views of what this text actually means. One view is that Joshua is asking for an eclipse, which then can be dated to September 30th, 1131 BC. This doesn't seem very likely to me though, since our text specifies that the sun stands still over Gibeon in the east, and the moon stood in the valley of Ahalon in the west. Of the variety of views that are available, three views, in my opinion, seem the most reasonable. And they're all held by faithful, committed readers of the Bible. First, there's the traditional view, that the sun and moon literally stopped in their course, or rather that the earth stopped spinning so that it appeared the sun and moon stopped. Certainly, this is within God's power to do. But we have no corroborating historical sources from that time period 
noting a day when the sun stood still. If this is the correct view, it is a very strong reminder that God is not subject to the laws of nature. No, the laws of nature describe God's regular way of acting in the world. God regularly uses the moon to control tides and the spinning of the earth to generate gravity and atmosphere. But if he chooses not to, and to, to, to maintain those by his own power, it's well within his ability. The second plausible view is that Joshua's words are simply figurative. Joshua, Joshua could be saying, don't let the sun go down until the battle is won. Or if the army from Jerusalem worshiped the sun, as may have been the case, perhaps Joshua is asking God to defeat the sun, to make them stand on, the sun stand on the sidelines, as it were. Third, this verb used for stand still uh, is, is rather broad. It can refer to a variety of things. It has a wide range of meaning. And so the sense could be something like, stop shining, stop producing your light. And there's good reason to think that the text maybe does indeed mean this. For one, Joshua arrives early in the morning, perhaps even before dawn while it's still dark out. And he asks for the sun to be stopped in the east where it rises. Why would Joshua ask for the day to be lengthened before it has even started? But on the other hand, if Joshua is launching a surprise attack before dawn, it makes sense why he would ask God to stop the sun from shining, to block the sun before it even rises in the east over Gibeon. On this view, then, it seems that we should connect the hail and the hailstorm with whatever meteorological phenomenon blocks out the sunlight. I do lean towards this last view, but as I say, these are all three live options, as it were, that faithful Bible-believing Christians hold to. Whatever the precise nature of Joshua's request, the point of this part of the narrative is clear. Joshua has, in the words of biblical scholar David Firth, made an audacious prayer, and God has answered it. This stands in stark contrast to the last chapter where Joshua and Israel made a big decision without praying. Here Joshua prays and prays boldly and God answers his prayer. Now the same God who is faithful to Joshua and his people answering prayers in Joshua's day is faithful to answer our prayers today. John reminds us of this in 1 John chapter 5. This is the confidence we have towards God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. If God hears even the most audacious prayers, then why wouldn't we pray? If God is faithful to answer prayer, then we must not be lazy in our prayer lives. We too must be faithful in our prayers. If God answers prayers, even the most audacious prayers, with such power and might, then we must not be frivolous in our prayers. We must be constant, faithful, and sober in our prayers. If God is faithful, and he is, in answering prayer. God is faithful to his people answering their prayers. Indeed, there is no limit to God's faithfulness. Now, you may be putting these two parts together, 
that Joshua was faithful to his word, and so God was faithful to Joshua. And you may start to worry a bit. You may be thinking, I am not as faithful to my word as Joshua. I am not as obedient as Joshua. I'm not as noble as Joshua. If you're feeling a bit uncomfortable, that's not wrong. The reality is, apart from God's grace, we're more like the Canaanite kings in an alliance rebelling against God's will, against God's rule, and against God's plan. Apart from God's grace, we are the rebel kings opposed to God's people. We're the rebel kings who deserve the punishment that they got. They were put to death for their rebellion against God's will, and they're hung on the tree to symbolize that they were even cursed for opposing God's purposes for his people. It's what we deserve. But here is the good news. Jesus, who was named after Joshua, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful even when we are faithless. He suffers the same fate as these kings. He's taken into captivity. He's hung on a tree and cursed and put to death. And his body is thrown in a grave and blocked with a stone that's guarded by guards, just like these kings. But Jesus, unlike these kings, notice it says in verse 27, they remain there, the stones and the cave are there to this very day. The king's bodies of the Canaanite kings are still in the grave. But Jesus, the faithful king, rose again. He rose again, and this declares to all people that he is, in fact, God's king, who has dealt with the punishment we deserve, our death, our curse, and our sin, so that we might have the blessings that he has won for us, that we might live as his followers in his kingdom. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, although we, apart from your grace, are rebels against you, you nevertheless took the punishment that we deserve and you bore it on a tree. You took the curse, you took the death, you took the sin, and you've done away with it. We are called to be faithful to our word, and yet we are not always faithful. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness. You answer our prayers, and yet we are not as steadfast in our prayers as we ought to be, and for that we ask for our forgiveness. And yet you are faithful to us, going beyond what anyone can imagine. And for that, we can do nothing but praise you, lay down our arms as rebels, and join your cause and your kingdom. Amen. Uh, kids, please have your parents send in the kids' notes to me. I look forward to seeing those.